Well, the title of this morning's sermon, and probably the next one anyway, maybe the next two, is We Know. And it's a bold statement. We know. It's a simple statement. We know. And this is the phrase that John has used a few other times throughout this letter that he wrote of 1 John. But these are the words that he's going to use to summarize the end of this letter of 1 John. We know. And he's going to have three different applications or reminders or conclusory kind of statements that he uses as a summary statements for this letter that he's written. When you think of this word know, there are two separate New Testament Greek words that are translated with the English word know. And so it makes it a little bit easier to understand which of the two words may be being used by John. In this instance, he's going to be using the word oida, which it focuses on cognitive knowledge that is learned through instruction. And that's in comparison to the other word for know in Greek that is gnosko, that is associated with knowledge that is learned through experience. So we have cognitive knowledge that's learned through instruction. We have experiential knowledge that's learned through actually doing things or observing things firsthand. They often go hand in hand. They're not that separate. The two words are evenly split in their usage within the New Testament, roughly an equal number of times that the word know is translated in English that when you're looking through the New Testament, it's this word for cognitive knowledge. About half of the times it's the word that's representing experiential knowledge. But they're not usually used apart from each other in the sense that they're very closely related. It's very rare for you to experience something apart from any instruction. Very often when you think about experiential knowledge, It's tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's stepping out by faith in response to something that you had already previously learned. And so from a Christian perspective or from a spiritual perspective, the two are very closely linked together. They often, as I said, they go hand in hand. Now sometimes experiential knowledge can be more reliable because you learn something firsthand without needing to ascertain the credibility of the instructor who is teaching you. So when you're thinking about cognitive knowledge, cognitive knowledge, of course, is only going to be as good or useful as the credibility of the one who is teaching. So if it's knowledge that is learned through instruction, then you have to have some concern about who is the one doing the instruction. Now, when you think about experiential knowledge, on the other hand, of course, that's not foolproof either because the truths that you extrapolate from the experience that you've had, that they may be flawed. They may not be an accurate representation of what should have been learned or what the takeaway should have been to the experience that you went through. So you may have experiential knowledge, but the knowledge is formulated by you. And it's formulated by you based on you extrapolating what it is that I learned from this experience. And as you know, oftentimes dealing with children, the thing that they take away from a situation or even an attempt to teach them something is often very, very different than what you had intended to teach them. And so that can be true with us. We're just grown-up children when it comes right down to it. And it's often possible for us to experience things, but the takeaway we would have from the experience is not actually truth. It's our perception of what we experienced and it doesn't even represent reality sometimes. So when you're thinking about learning things through instruction... Obviously, we're 
teaching the Bible here this morning. We're looking at God teaching us the Bible as we look at his word this morning. So as we read the word of God, it's God seeking to illuminate us, to teach us, to, to train us up with his truth by putting it in front of us and making it available to us. And so although in many different facets where you're learning things or being taught things and you're gaining cognitive knowledge of things, you're at the mercy of the credibility or the accuracy of the teacher. That's not so when it comes to spiritual things. When God himself is the teacher, then we know because God is utterly and entirely reliable that everything that he teaches us is utterly and completely reliable. There's none of it that we need to wonder, is this true or is this not true? That's why the Bible is referred to as the word of truth. Now when you're thinking about teaching that comes from God himself, throughout this letter John has been declaring truths to these believers that he learned directly either from Jesus Christ or the inspiration of God's spirit. If you go back to 1 John chapter 1, you see how he speaks of the apostolic witness from the very first verses of this letter. He says in 1 John 1, Verse 1, I still hear a few pages turning, so I'll give you another moment to get there. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have, now catch this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen, now catch this, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you with what objective in mind. This has been our objective throughout this whole letter. This has been the focus of the whole letter. Why did I write this letter to you? Why am I declaring God's truths to you? Why am I reminding you of the things that I learned from Jesus Christ himself? We declare them to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. You can't have fellowship with us unless we have a common fellowship with Jesus Christ. That is truly who our fellowship is, is with. And so as we respond and enjoy that intimacy of relationship with him, then we're going to experience this fullness of joy that is laid out there in verse 4, which can only be found where? In his presence. So to be in God's presence is to be presently in that moment, personally enjoying an intimacy of relationship with him as we're walking with our eyes focused on him, as we're looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as we're walking side by side, hand in hand, walking by means of his spirit, being led and directed by his spirit, that is being in the presence of God in this moment. When we speak to him in prayer, when we read his word, that's when we're interacting with God. And as we do that and we're in his presence, that's where fullness of joy is is found. And that has been the theme of this whole book, that maximum joy in the Christian life can only be experienced through intimacy with him. And that if you're going to live life in close proximity to him, you will, as a byproduct of that closeness, you will enjoy that life that he promises. You'll have that fullness of joy. But the alternative that's been laid out over and over through many different examples and illustrations has been that if you choose to live life apart from 
God, to distance yourself from God, to not lean into him in times of difficulty or trial, to not walk with him in times of plenty, to not include him in your thinking, to not allow him to speak to you through his word, to not communicate to him through prayer. While that's true, you're not going to be experiencing that abundant life, that full life, that maximum joy that can only be found through him. So as we think about the whole purpose being of this letter to communicate truth, to communicate truth about Christian living, a letter written to Christians about how to maximize or make the most of the life that's in front of them. So that was all conditioned on John speaking or proclaiming or teaching or reminding them of things that he didn't come up with, things that he had learned from Jesus Christ himself or had been inspired by God's Spirit to communicate to these believers. And so as we're thinking about the things he's going to conclude with now or the the summary statements of of the book or the, the closing here, certainly he doesn't cover it all, but as he does this, naturally it comes back to the things that have been taught. That references this cognitive knowledge where you've been made aware of God's truth. And how did that happen? I had to learn it first or it had to be revealed to me first and then I had to teach it to you. And I'm reminding you that you know this. Not you might know this. You know this because I've told you this. So you have, at a minimum now, he's saying you have no excuse for not experiencing a joy-filled, abundant life. A life characterized by contentment. A life characterized by God's peace. I will keep him again in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me because he's presently trusting in me. He's saying you have no excuse. I've, I've let you know that the only way you're going to experience those things is if you now appropriate by faith the truths that I've been teaching you or making you aware of cognitively. That's where they go hand in hand together. It's not enough to just know God's truth. That won't do you any good until you appropriate it personally through faith at a point in time where you put your trust in the finished death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that moment as then you become God's child that you would then go through life moment by moment appropriating by faith the provisions and promises and the power of God's Spirit working within you, walking by means of His influence and His power so that He would then direct you in a way that would bring God glory and bring you joy in time and in eternity. So as you're thinking about those things, when, when truth is sourced from God himself, those truths can be absolutely reliable, and I want to say this, absolutely reliable regardless of your experiences. Let me say that again. If the truth is sourced from God himself, it is absolutely reliable regardless of your experiences or regardless of how you feel about it. And very often, we have different experiences or different feelings than what God has revealed in his word. God gave us feelings. They're from God himself. They can be helpful, but they, don't, they shouldn't override the plain truth that God reveals cognitively through his word that he wants us to know and know in a way that we're practically relying and depending on in the moments of our lives as we go to the various places and spaces that God directs us. He's saying, let that be the foundation. Your emotions and your experiences, they can contribute to that, but the foundation has to be my truth. And that's why I think it's so fitting that John decided here to end this letter with these three phrases that start with, 
we know. So John's going to re- review three different statements here. We're going to look at, Lord willing, verse 18. If you, you should all still be there, but verse 18 is what I want to read. We're not going to do any review today. We're just going to jump right into it. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, some of you are saying, you're just toying with us now. We're so close to the end of this letter, and we're only going to do this one verse. (laughs) We're only going to do this one verse because there's a lot here. And so we're going to work through this, Lord willing, this morning. So let's, let's just keep plugging along and unpack this a little bit more. But we know. Now I've talked a little bit about this. There's not a tremendous amount that we have to pull out of this. But we, of course, includes John and these fellow believers who make up his audience. Now remember, <clears throat> I've said this over and over again. This is a letter written to believers. It is not a letter written to believers about how they could become believers or they could become God's children. It's written to God's children about how they could maximize their earthly experience as they go about their lives. This is about Christian living. So this isn't a book and and never has been a book about trying to lay out how somebody could be saved or even how somebody could have confidence that they are saved as some have used this book to, to point to. It's a book about fellowship, how you can maximize your time here on earth by spending it in close proximity to God and not distancing yourself from Him. So when we talk about we know, I, I've brought this out already, this is oida, this is intuitive knowledge that is gained by instruction. This is not experiential knowledge, which we said was a different word altogether. Here John is going to be beginning a three-part group of concluding or summarizing statements. And they all are going to start with, we know. So there's going to be three of these various summaries, and this is just the first of those three. Now when you're thinking about intuitive knowledge, this is something that can be known through learning. It can be known apart from ever experiencing it. And oftentimes we refuse to learn that way. We say, you can tell me all the things that you want, but the only way I'm going to learn it is if I go through it myself. How many of you can relate to teaching or instruction that you were given from somebody who now in hindsight you realize was much wiser than you? (laughs) And was it instruction? Was it truth that was being presented to you? Cognitively, were you now aware of that principle or that instruction or that warning that was passed on to you? How many of you you refused to learn that way? Insisted on experiencing that yourself? Young people, your parents have tried to teach you a number of different things. Not all of them have been useless. Sometimes a teenager can get a mentality that my parents have nothing useful (laughs) 
to teach me. That's not the case. Next to God himself, there's likely no one on the planet who cares more about you than your parents or the people who are acting as your parents in your life. Those are usually the people who love you and care about you more than anyone else. Generally speaking, when they tell you things, it's because they want what is best for you. Generally speaking, they're not telling you those things because they're out to get you. Those of you who are a little bit older, God, as he tells us things, he's not out to get us. He's not out to hold us back from something that would be so amazing. He's out to protect us from the things that will harm us. As God brings other people into your life, maybe it's not your parents anymore, maybe it's still your parents. That's certainly true of me, it's still my parents. But maybe it's other people that God wants to give you instruction. He wants to give you advice, cognitive advice. You don't need to ignore it all. You have the opportunity to respond to it, especially when it comes to spiritual things, to be looking to the Lord with it and saying, as somebody reminds me of a principle from your word or as your word convicts or challenges my thinking, help me not to just become harder harder than I already am. Help me to acknowledge or admit or confess that I have been thinking in a manner that is inconsistent with you, that I haven't been agreeing with you, that I haven't been saying the same thing as you. Help me to acknowledge my sin, acknowledge the error in my thinking and turn back to you with an attitude of dependence on you. And so in any event, experience is not the only way to learn. It'd be very good if we would learn things cognitively and then we would appropriate them in our lives instead of having to go through every pit and every trial and every difficulty just to learn those lessons the hard way. Now, if we're talking about spiritual matters, we're talking about knowledge that is gained through teaching, but through whose teaching? Through God's teaching. So it's known in this instance by believing in God's testimony. That's the appropriation of the knowledge from God's word is that you have to read it, then you have to internalize it, and then you have to believe in it. And as you believe in it, that's how you're presently then appropriating God's truth and God's testimony. I was thinking about this and I had a little bit of a summary here. The believer has spiritual knowledge only because the Lord chose to reveal it to him in the living word, who is Jesus Christ, and in his written word, which is the Bible. This is the basis for the believer's knowledge of something. The Lord is the final authority on all things, and short of him, the world cannot ascertain spiritual truth. If you're interested in knowing God's truth, if you're interested in spiritual truth, there's no other place for you to find it than God's word. God has a monopoly on his truth. He revealed it through his word. He didn't hold anything back. He revealed everything that he thought you needed to know in his book. And it's an amazing book. So as you think about that, two things. One, are you looking for truth in other places? Are you seeking for direction from other sources? Are you meditating or spending your time consuming and taking in these funnels and tunnels of information that are coming from sources less credible than this book? 
It doesn't ultimately matter what the other source of information is. It doesn't matter how many of your friends think it's a great source of information. This is the source of life. This is the tunnel of truth that we need to be tapped into. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to get information from other places. Everybody does. But the question is, how much value are you going to put on that information compared to how much value you put on the information that comes from God's word? How much time are you going to spend consuming that information from other sources versus how much time are you going to spend consuming God's truth from this source, the only credible source he ever gave man? Now, is this a thin book? How many of you have this all figured out? How many of you have even read all of this? It has a beginning and it has a storyline that can be tracked all the way to an ending. And in this book, God tells us what he wants us to know about himself. I've said this before and I'll say this now. The issue isn't, does God want you to know his truth? The issue is, do you want to know God's truth? And then as a friend of mine frequently says, how badly do you want to know God's truth? It's right in front of you. It's available to you. And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty or to shame you, but to convict you as I need to convict myself. How much time do I make to take in information, to watch programming, to take in data from various sources? Now compare that to how much time am I going to give the Lord to speak to me through his word. Word of God, speak. Do you have that mentality when you open the pages of this? The word of God, do you have that mentality? Word of God, speak to me. Do you have a mentality that I don't want to miss any of this? I don't want to treat some of, some of it as more important than the rest of it. I want to spend time and invest time front to back reading through God's word and not doing it just for a sense of having this, you know, spiritual badge of honor. I did it! Hey, I just wanted you to know that I I, I read through the Bible. I I read through the Bible again. I just just wanted you to know that. That's not the point. The point is it's available to you. God wants you to know it. Why wouldn't you want to know it? So how do you respond? If you're, if you're sitting here today and you say, I haven't had that kind of a desire to know God's word. I'll tell you what, you're never going to get enough of it from coming here. We cover a small portion of what's available to us. This is just a part. This is a supplemental part of investing in Bible study yourself. What does the sign say out front of our church? Heritage Trail what? Bible Church. That would lead people to think that we place a really high value on this book, right? So the question is, do we? So when you think about what we can know cognitively, the question is, what is available to know? And I'm telling you the answer. This is what's available to know. And that's effectively what John is talking about as he's talking about everything that we have to know, it's coming from God himself. It's sourced from God himself. And that's what gives us a sense that this would be worth knowing. But I think this statement here is just packed full of stuff. God didn't owe us anything. You know, you want to think about grace? 
This is an example of grace here on display. The Lord chose to reveal it. He didn't, he didn't owe us anything. He could have left us wandering around. He could have left us without a solution to our sinfulness. He could have left us hopeless and helpless and hellbound. He didn't have to provide a way. He didn't have to send his son to die in our place. Jesus didn't have to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. Jesus didn't have to be made sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He chose to do that. That God had in eternity past chose to make a way for sinners like you and I. That would be amazing enough, wouldn't it? That God chose to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to him through the sacrifice of his son. Wouldn't that be enough? But God says, on top of that, I'm going to reveal a tremendous amount about myself to you and I'm going to make it possible for you to live life with me every moment of every day. I'm going to come and send my spirit to actually take up residence inside of you so that I'm going to be with you and I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you every single thing that you need to thrive in this life and to live that with me. Imagine the blessing that you have that God says you can spend this life not palling around with a celebrity but living life with the creator of the universe, having a personal relationship with God. Some of you think about, man, if I could just spend life with somebody and then fill in the blank. Man, if I could just spend life with, some of you are, lo- are going through a period of lonely li- loneliness right now. You don't care who it would be. And I'm not making light of that. That's a hard place to be in. But as a Christian, you were never alone. The one who mattered most was already living inside of you and wanting to spend every moment of every day with you. Now, is it nice to have human beings to share life with? Yes. Some of you are thinking, you know, if I could just spend more time or be able to live my life with this person I look up to or, again, this celebrity. But you lack nothing. Without any other human interaction at all, you lack nothing. God does provide us a local church. He does provide a way for us to worship him and to serve him together collectively as a body of other believers. That's great. That's in addition to the fact, though, that you already lacked nothing because you had him. You could live life with him. But he in his love said, rescuing you from the penalty of your sin wasn't enough. I now want to make a way for you to live life with me and the way for you to know The paths of righteousness, the paths that I have for you is one, to keep your eyes on me so that my spirit can lead and direct you, but two, so that you can be directed and led by the truth of my word. And you think, how amazing that God would love us enough to come to earth as the living word and to also give us his written word. What a blessing. And we squander it. Amen? We just squander it. And he's saying, again, it's not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's about let's move forward. How about tomorrow? Will we think a little bit more of this tomorrow? Will we make a little bit more time for this tomorrow? Not as some kind of a mechanical way to prove that we're more spiritual than the next person, but as a way to relationally enjoy living life with him. So then we move on to this next clause. So we know, and what do we know? You're like, man, alive. It's been a while to get to this. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. 
I'm not promising that I can make that not, not do that. All right, whoever is born of God. So let's look at is born of God. It's a participial phrase that modifies the subject. So whoever is born of God refers to we. So we know that whoever is born of God, no, sorry, the whoever, whoever is being modified by is born of God. So that could refer to anyone. So anyone, now they're going to be described here by this participial phrase, who is born of God. It gives us a little bit more explanation. It gives us a little bit more of a description of that person, that whoever or whomever, that anyone that is being referenced there. So we know that anyone, and now they're described as being born of God. Now, they're also described as not sinning. So the one that is not sinning is born of God is the way to do it backwards. So is born of God is just giving us more information about the one who later on we're going to see is not sinning. So if we're going to define this a little bit, to be born of God, to be brought into existence, conceived, fathered, or produced by, the idea that we're looking at is anything that originates with or is produced by God, including a Christian whose spiritual birth is sourced in God, and that's the primary emphasis of what we're looking at here. The one whose spiritual birth is sourced in God, and then we'll get to the, what comes of that, does not sin and what that means. But I want to comment on this for a second. This is in the pre- perfect tense. And I wouldn't normally you know, bring that out all the time, but I love the perfect tense even more so than the others just because it oftentimes has to do with an assurance that we can have of something that occurred in the past but has ongoing results in the present. So we have this, the enduring effects in the present of a completed event in the past. So the one who in the past was born of God, now there's some ongoing ramifications associated with that. But I would say that that perfect tense, it reinforces the doctrine of eternal security because it's talking about there was this point in time in the past where one was born of God. Now how is one born of God? They have to experience a point of birth. How are you born into if you're, how are you born physically? At some point in time, you experience a physical birth. So when the Bible talks about being born again, it's talking about experiencing a spiritual birth. Going from being associated with Adam and the sinfulness of Adam, being associated with being a sinner, to being now associated with Jesus Christ, to being in Christ. Now how does that transition change? How do we go from being in Adam to being in Christ? How do we go from being described as dead in trespasses and sins to being described as being made alive again with Christ? We do that through faith. Through faith in what? Through faith in Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf. So because of God's righteousness and man's sinfulness, there was a debt or a penalty that was owed for sin. Sin had separated us from God because God was holy and he couldn't be tainted with sin. So if we were going to be where he is, which is in heaven, something would have to be done to deal with our sinfulness. Because for us to be with him, we couldn't be identified with sin. We'd have to be identified with righteousness because he's righteous and just and holy. And so God in his great love, he looked down at men and he said, there's none righteous though. There's not one who's righteous. There's not one just man upon the earth that sins that doeth good and sinneth not. Not one. So he looked down and he said, they all have a problem. I need to do something about that. They're identified with unrighteousness. And so he said, if all are in that condition and there's none righteous, no, not one, 
And if the penalty or the, the wage that's earned from or the debt that's owed because of that sinfulness is separation from me or death, then either they're going to have to die to satisfy that debt that is owed or somebody else is going to have to die in their place. And so Jesus became our substitute. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. The one who was innocent took our place. And as he died on the cross and his hands were nailed to the cross, he effectively was saying, I love you this much. I love you so much that I'd be willing to die in your place. And as I die in your place, I'm not dying for any sins that I've done. I'm paying the penalty for the sins that you have done. I'm paying the debt that you owe. And the last thing he cried out was, it is finished. The payment has been made in full. Now, if a payment has been made in full, does there remain anything left to pay? No. So the question becomes, how can I get in on that great demonstration of love that Christ made for me? I get in on it by accepting his substitutionary death on my behalf, believing in that. So how do I do that? In my mind, I have to be convinced to put my trust and my confidence exclusively in what Christ has done for me. The moment that I get my confidence or I take my confidence off of other things I had been trusting in and I put all of my eggs in one basket of putting my trust that what Christ did for me was enough, that there's nothing left to do, that he didn't leave any part of the mission unfulfilled, that he completed the mission and he did everything that was necessary. And the minute I accept that mentally, I am born again and I experience this new birth. So that was the point in time in the past, but the ongoing effects continue in the future and we'll get to what some of those ongoing effects are, but there's an element here of eternal security in the perfect tense here. See, a person who was born of God in the past and continues as a child of God in the present it should, it should just say continues, it shouldn't say and. A person who was born of God in the past continues as a child of God in the present. Nothing and no one can change that fixed reality. So a little bit of a note there on the perfect tense. I think it actually brings out the doctrine of eternal security because no one and nothing can change a fixed of event that took place in the past with permanent ongoing effects in the future. Now what is the effect that John wants to summarize here that he's talked about throughout this letter? He's talked about it in every chapter to some extent. This idea that the Christian is, giving ac- is given access when he's walking in fellowship to a life that is characterized by God's righteousness as God's Spirit is the one directing and working in him so that there's a kind of life, a quality of life, a type of life that is being produced in him that is completely different and distinct from the life that was being lived apart from God. That the Christian has access through fellowship with God himself and the leading and directing and empowerment of the Spirit of God to live a life that is characterized by God's holiness instead of man's sinfulness. So that's effectively what we're getting at here and John is reminding. Now, John has gone into it before and so this is a summary again of what he's already covered. John is not teaching, and I'll, I'll do this quickly or somewhat quickly hopefully, John is not teaching that it is impossible for believers to sin. He is not teaching that it is impossible for a child of God to sin habitually or as a pattern. 
Now, the reason I see that is, say that is because there's not one person in this room who has put their trust in Jesus Christ who thinks it's impossible for believers to sin. Amen? <laughs> I hope there's none of you in this room that think it's impossible for a child of God to sin habitually or as a pattern either. Because that's what some sects of Christianity do. They say that a Christian, and they'll use words to describe Christian as authentic, sincere, genuine. They'll try to qualify Christian. You're either a Christian because you put your faith in Christ or you did not. That's the only qualification for whether you're a Christian or not. But they'll seek to qualify what a Christian is or isn't, and they'll do it by always focusing on externals. The external manifestation, what they'll say of an internal faith. And so they'll really focus on passages about being known by your fruit and those types of things where they're looking for changed lives instead of changed hearts. God's in the business of being concerned about changed hearts. He is very, very interested in changing your life. He wants to change your life. He wants to transform you into something unrecognizable from what you were before. He wants to take you and mold you and make you into something different. But in terms of being born into his family, he's only focused on your heart. Have you put your confidence and trust in the finished work of his son? Because friends, if you could have saved yourself by conforming your own life and changing your own life and making your own life different, you wouldn't have needed Christ. We needed Christ because we couldn't make ourselves acceptable to God unless God made us acceptable to him through the sacrifice of his son. As his son took our sinfulness and put it on himself and he took his righteousness and he clothed us with his righteousness. The only reason we're acceptable to God is because he doesn't see us in our sin anymore. He sees us in his son, clothed in the righteousness of his son. So it's certainly possible for a child of God to sin and to sin habitually or as a pattern and here's a little bit of an explanation of that. If a believer can commit the same sin twice, he or she can do so habitually. That's the definition of habitually, more than once. If a believer can alternate between a few different sins, he or she can establish a pattern of sin. And all Christians do both. We do not hold to that theology here. A Christian has the opportunity to let the Lord transform his life, but it's not automatic. Everyone who has put his faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary at a point in time, every one of those people who have done that is justified, declared to be in a right standing with a holy God on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, on the basis of the work of another on his behalf. Every single person who has put his faith in Jesus Christ at a point in time is guaranteed to one day be glorified. One day they'll be taken to be with God himself. They'll be given a new body, And sin itself will be removed from the equation. There will be no sin in heaven. There won't be a sin nature. There won't be sin external to us either. There will be no sin. We'll be free from the very presence of sin. And the Bible confirms that every single believer will be glorified one day. But what is not automatic is this process of progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification that that can or that may or may not occur over time. God wants to conform us and change us and mold us over time so we're less and less like ourselves and more and more like him. But that process isn't automatic. Why? Because he doesn't force it on us. 
Because each person must, must daily make, moment by moment, make choices to either respond positively to the Lord and get their eyes off of themselves and their circumstances and to have this spirit of dependence on God to do in and through them what they could never do from, for themselves as they look to Jesus, as they get their focus on eternal things, as they have this vertical mindset instead of a horizontal mindset. God can't make you do that. If you want to be consumed with yourself or consumed with the circumstances of your life, you can, but in that moment you're not going to be experiencing that practical sanctification or that being set apart is what that word means, that practical being a set apart from the rest of the world around you, you're going to fit right in. But God's desire is to set you apart practically. You already are positionally sanctified or set apart from the world. He wants you to be in a position where through trusting him and letting him work in your life, you can practically be set apart from the rest of the world around you. But the choice is yours. He doesn't make you do that. And so when we're talking about this does not sin, this is a reference to making a choice to either enjoy fellowship in the moment presently as a state of being in joy fellowship now or not. It's available though. We know that it's available. Cognitively we're aware of this truth that God has made this life that is characterized by his righteousness available to everyone who has been born as a son of God. It's available. The question is, will you access it or appropriate it? So continue with a few more thoughts about does not sin. All Christians have sin in their lives that they are aware of and unaware of. Now think about that, even the habitual sin that people talk about or the pattern of sin. If you have sin in your life that you're not even aware of, how could you even be aware whether you have a pattern of sin or a a habit of sin? Jesus talks about this himself when he talks to his disciples about why he needs to wash their feet. He says as they go about in the world, they're going to pick up what? dust and dirt and defilement on the feet. What comes into contact with the ground? The feet. If you've ever been in a dusty climate, you know that. If you've ever gone barefoot in your yard, you know that. It's your feet that pick up that defilement. Now what has to happen? Periodically, there's got to be a cleansing that takes place of your feet. It's a picture of having this attitude that periodically you're saying to the Lord, you're recognizing, you're acknowledging I haven't been living life the way that you wanted me to. That's what 1 John 1, 9 here has been all about. Admitting and confessing to the Lord that I haven't been in agreement with you. I haven't been walking in the direction that you want for me. I haven't been including you in my life. I haven't been making time for you. And I want to, and and, and mentally, that's the, the more important part, and then mentally deciding I'm going to get my eyes back on you. I'm going to say the same thing as you do about even my sinfulness and your provision to meet my every need. John is emphasizing access to intimate fellowship with God. This whole principle was, covering, was covered in great detail in our message on 1 John 3.9 a little bit more. So you can, if you want to look that one up, you could listen to that one, 1 John 3.9. It's on our website if you want to hear more about this. But there's endless biblical examples of people or believers that are sinning. You could pick, you could pick your favorite. God shares all those examples to show man that apart from him, man is a failure. 
Man is a flop and a failure apart from God's in working in him, working out of him what he has worked in him. Apart from God's provision to meet your every need, not just for justification but for Christian living, you cannot please God. Apart from faith, it's impossible to please him. So then you're thinking about access. Access is possible because the believer is born of God and has a new nature. So you're talking about access to this intimate fellowship with God. How could it be that a child of God would not sin? Because while he's enjoying fellowship with God and while God's spirit is presently leading and directing in his life, the spirit of God isn't going to lead us to sin. So while we're enjoying him, a byproduct of that is that you're not presently going to be sinning. That's been the principle that John has tried to bring out several different times. But it's because of the new birth and the new nature that we have. It's because God's spirit has taken up residence inside of you. This means that God's very nature is imparted to the child of God. And 2 Peter 1.4 brings this principle out. By which we have been given or have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be, not you automatically will, but that you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There's a choice. There's the option. Will you walk by means of the Spirit of God? Will you let the Spirit of God lead in your life? That isn't even the focus so much as will I just live life with him? Will I stay in fellowship with him? Will I stay connected to him? Will I lean into him? You see, the world is characterized by corruption as we saw in that verse. We escaped. We have the opportunity to escape that corruption in terms of practical sanctification. We have that opportunity. And the believer is provided a means of escaping that corruption present victory in the life of the believer is made possible as a result of the new birth in the ongoing and dwelling enabling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's the issue, is will you presently allow God to have his way in and through you so that this could, in this moment, as a state of being, be true of you? And the overall idea here is God cannot sin, and thus sin can never be an expression of his spirit working within you as you enjoy present intimate fellowship with him. John is affirming that divine birth does not give birth to sin and death, but to life. The divine birth, the things that are born of God, that are an outflowing of God's provision for you or produced by God or sourced in God, that is not sin. Sin is not sourced in God. What is sourced in God is life. What is sourced in God is holiness and righteousness. That's what God wants to produce in you. He wants to produce his life in and through you. The same qualities and characteristics of being a partaker of that divine nature, that's what eternal life, that quality of life in time, that is the nature and quality of life that God wants to be true of you as he produces it in and through you, as you reckon yourself, yield yourself, are getting out of his way, are presenting yourself. You have to know it. You have to reckon those things to be true. You have to get, get past yourself and yield yourself to allowing God to then work in and through you as you present yourself as a vessel in his hands, a vessel for him to use. It's about a positive volitional response where you're getting yourself out of God's way and saying, here am I, use me, Lord. I know I'm nothing. I know that without you I can do nothing. But I know that with you working through me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens 
me. So then we get this word but, this transition. So we know whoever is born of God does not sin, but, and it sets up this alternate alternative or this contrast to what was last said. Instead of being characterized or identified with sin and separation from God, it causes the believer the opportunity to access a different way of life, a different identity. The believer has that access. The question is, will they appropriate that access to a different way of identifying or being identified or a different manner of life? Remember that this whole letter has been about one's identity as a child of God and the enjoyment that's possible as a byproduct of enjoying that intimate fellowship with God. So then we get to this, this alternate cause here. So in contrast to sinning, he who has been born of God keeps himself. This word keeps is defined as to attend to carefully, take care of, to guard metaphorically, to keep one in the state in which he is to attend to carefully, to take care of, to guard, to keep in the state in which he is. Now, I wish this was an easy clause, but it it also is not. The interpretation of this clause depends heavily on the translation you use. The primary difference is that one group of translations understands this clause as a reference to Jesus, while the other sees it as a reference to the believer. So this, this is the clause that's at issue here. Actually, it goes to there. So who is that referencing? So some, some ref- say that that's referencing Jesus Christ, keeping, and then in, that, in those translations, that word wouldn't be himself, it would be him. It would it'd be saying, effectively, Jesus Christ keeps him. Or he who has been born of God, referencing a believer, keeps himself, is how the other, the group, other group of translations do it. I'm going to cover both really quickly here. Lord willing. He who has been born of God keeps himself. This is what the New King James and the King James Version of the Bible have. So we'll go through this first. The focus here is appropriating practically the victory that is available to every believer by abiding or remaining or walking in present fellowship. So that ties in pretty nicely to what we've been talking about in this letter. The focus isn't on literally providing this victory for yourself, but just appropriating the victory that already was available. God doesn't force practical victory on you. You must appropriate the victory that is available via a positive volitional response to God, and I've covered that at length. So this view would would take the perspective that this isn't saying that a person keeps himself or provides this victory for himself. It's just saying that instead of having a life characterized by sin, the one who's presently abiding with the Father in fellowship with him, that person is keeping himself in the sense that he's appropriating the victory that's presently available to him. And here's a verse that would kind of tie in with that. Ephesians 6, 10 through 11 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So same idea. The might and the power is provided by God. The defensive armor is provided by God. Now here's the personal appropriation part of it, though. Put on 
This is the personal appropriation part of it. Put on. God doesn't make you put it on. He provides you with all the defensive armor you need to stand against the wiles of the, de- the devil, but the decision is here. Put on the whole armor of God or don't put it on. But that, while you have it on, you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and we'll see that that's how this, uh, this phrase ends too. So there's a lot of similarities there from what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. Now, in this passage here, I don't have it, both aspects are covered. This idea that God is the one ultimately keeping because God is the one ultimately providing, but at the same time, you have to be the one who is appropriating it. So you have, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's his keeping. That's his provision, focus. But then you have the put on part of it that is your choice in it. And that's why when you see even Galatians 5.16, this I say then walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The question is, will you Choose to walk by means of, that's the best way of, expl- of understanding that verse. Walk by means of the Spirit. Will you choose that or not in a particular moment in time? Now, here's the alternative. Well, maybe I, let's see. So here's the other view. The one begotten by God keeps the child of God. And so the one, one there often is capitalized to reference that it's Jesus being referenced. The one begotten by God keeps the child of God. So let's look at this view. The focus here is position and security. The believer is kept safe positionally by Christ and enjoys practical victory as God works in and through him by the power which he supplies. The principle is the same, I guess, either way. God has to be the one who's ultimately providing the victory, making it available. The believer has to be the one who's appropriating through a present walk or of fellowship with God the victory that God has made available. So there's both aspects to it and that's why I think we ended up with these two different classes of focus. It's not an issue of is either one true? Both are true. The issue is which one do you think John is putting the greater emphasis on? But you need both. You can't have victory without God having provided the victory and keeping us in a sense of providing us that positional access to being identified as being in Christ and then also having provided us with the victory available through having a present walk of fellowship with him as he empowers us through his spirit. That all comes back to putting the focus on on God. But ultimately, God doesn't make us choose that and so I think that's where the other, the other view came from. So here's the focus is on our position and the security that we have. Regardless of whether this is John's focus, the principle is true. And here's just a few verses that this is why people come up with this interpretation because John himself uses this language in a very positional way in the Gospel of John. Now the Gospel of John though had a different purpose. The purpose of the Gospel of John is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. It was, a, it was an evangelistic book more so than this which is a book written about Christian living to believers but this is where they're getting it from, I believe. See, John seventeen twelve says, while I was with them, this is Jesus speaking, in the world I kept them in your name. That's where that security comes from, positional security. Those whom you gave me I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. He goes on three verses later to say, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world in relation to believers, but that you should keep them 
from the evil one. So this is specifically the verse that they would go to that says, the one who is keeping believers from the evil one, which is exactly how the wicked one does not touch him is how this verse is going to end. It's through God keeping us. It's through God providing for that protection from the evil one. And so that's why they would say the focus here, even though this is a book about Christian living, it can be on God's provision for ultimately being the one that keeps us from the evil one in a positional way. And then in terms of God providing for that Christian success, it says this in 1 Peter 4.11b, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. So that's how they come to this way of looking at it, that, the, that Jesus is the one who keeps the child of God, keeps the child of God from what? The wicked one that would otherwise influence him. So do I have a view? Yes. Uh, my personal view on this is that it's the, it's the first one. It's, it's saying that the believer has to appropriate. He who has been born of God keeps himself. I think the New King James got the translation right there. The reason I think that is because I think context favors that view. The general context of the letter has been fellowship and practical Christian living. The immediate context here in chapter 5 is present sin and the practical implications of sin in the believer's life. The verses just before this were about praying about sin that one would observe in the life of a fellow believer. So this is about the practical implications of sin. And so in that in light of that, then it would stand to reason that this is more focused on one who is appropriating or guarding himself by choosing volitionally to, in a present moment, walk by means of the Spirit of God and enjoy intimate fellowship with God. That's been the theme of the book, and I think that's what you're being encouraged to do, is make a choice to not trust yourself, but to trust the Lord and to want to depend on Him and walk with Him as you go through these trials so keep instead of sinning the one that's born of God does not sin but instead he keeps himself keeps himself in what keeps himself in fellowship while he's in fellowship the wicked one does not touch him this is a reference to Satan and his constant efforts to derail the believer again we're talking about practical Christian living this is not about Satan's efforts to to rob the rob an individual of their eternity by convincing them to not put their faith in Jesus Christ at a point in time. I believe the context here is instead of being identified with sinfulness, the one who is presently walking in fellowship with the Lord is not presently sinning. That has been John's message. Instead, that one is presently keeping himself, keeping himself close to the Lord, drawing near to the Lord. While he's doing that and he's keeping himself in fellowship in the sense of he's leaning into the Lord and he's appropriating the promises that God has made to him, the wicked one in that moment does not touch him in a practical Christian living kind of a way. So the word translated touch means to lay hold of or negatively affect somebody. This is certainly true from both a positional perspective as Jesus' watchful care over believers preserves them from Satan's attempt to lay hold of them from an eternal perspective. So that's certainly true. However, the focus remains on present practical implications. John continues to promote the value of remaining in present fellowship. The believer who is presently abiding in fellowship is not presently affected by Satan's attack or tainted by sin, talking about present Christian living. That would remind you of what we saw earlier in 1 John chapter 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is he who overcomes? And we know that that's in the present tense because we studied this. Who is he who is presently overcoming the world? But he who is presently believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Your present walk of faith is this thing that provides present practical victory over sin in your life and allows you to enjoy intimate fellowship with the Lord in time. Well, that was a lot. Our title this morning was We Know. Well, we know what? I hope this will summarize. Practical victory over sin is available. That's what you know. Practical victory over sin is available whenever you remain connected to God through intimate fellowship. So if I lost you somewhere along the line there, that's the summary. Uh, When your kids ask you, what was the message about today, Dad? When you ask them, what was Sunday school about today? And then they ask you, what was the message about today? Do they ever do that? Some of you are hoping they don't. Practical victory over sin is available whenever you remain connected, connected to God through intimate fellowship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time that we could spend together. Thank you for your word. Pray that we would actually want to know it. Pray that we would take time to read it. Pray that we would see that that's where your truth can be found. Pray that we would be grateful that you saw fit to even bless us with your word. Pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, throw it on a shelf, throw it under the seat of the car, kick it around the house. Pray that we'd actually open it, read it, let you speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.